Hi everyone, uh, welcome to our um, latest academy session. And we're going to have three weeks um, on the subject of justice. And um, I hope you really find this fascinating, particularly in the light of some of the injustices that we read about and we see on our TV screens uh, recently. Uh, of course, all of us have got the George Floyd murder by the police back in May on our minds. And so it's, it's clearly important that we understand uh, what the Bible says about justice and what the Bible says that we should be doing about the injustices of the world. So just as an intro into this subject, let's go sort of back to basics. The Bible. The Bible is a story of creation and new creation. New creation being, of course, resurrection. So when the four Gospels end with uh, Jesus being raised from the dead, and when the book of Revelation ends with uh, a new heaven and a new earth, populated by God's people. This is the ultimate fulfilment of the Bible's message and Jesus' prayer that says, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So, Contrary to the emphasis of much of the church over the past couple of centuries, the purpose uh, of the gospel, and we'll be exploring this a little bit, the purpose of the gospel is not so much that you and I can go to heaven when we die. It is far broader, far greater, far grander than that. And it might be helpful just to go to Revelation at this point and read how John uh, sums up uh, the, how things will be at the end of time. So I'm going to read to you uh, Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. <clears throat> sea, of course, meaning evil or chaos. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and women, and he will live with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, <clears throat> God will remake heaven and earth and he will join them together forever. So it's not that we go to heaven <clears throat> for eternity. It is that heaven 
comes to earth. Indeed, it is the church itself, the heavenly Jerusalem that this scripture refers to, that comes down to earth. So the values of heaven will be here in the renewed earth. No more evil, no more injustice. But in the meantime, before that great day comes, we are to be, the Bible says, co-workers with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. Working to bring the kingdom as far as we can to the here and now. That's what we are saved for. <laughs> and to clarify the point that I'm making, it might be helpful to explain how the word religion has changed over time. You see, in the first century when Jesus and Paul lived, religion consisted of God-related activities that along with politics and community life held a culture and a community together. It bound people to their God and to one another. That's how it worked. That was religion. It was a community thing. In the modern Western world, it's a bit different, isn't it? Religion tends to mean, these days, God-related individual beliefs and practices that are supposedly separate from culture, politics and community. So, for the early Christians, religion was woven in all of life, woven into all of life. For the modern Western world, it is separated from it. So, the, what's the moral of this? The moral is, surely, that we need to get back to the biblical model. Now, many of you would have read Rick Warren's great book, The Purpose Driven Life. I know that many life groups <clears throat> here used to study it. And I don't know whether you remember the very first sentence in that book, the very first sentence before anything else was said. Let me remind you of what, what uh, that sentence was. It is not about you. <laughs> you see... He was summarising in one sentence what I've just been trying to explain over a few minutes, really. In other words, he was saying that although it is not uncommon for many Christians, modern Christians, to think that me and my salvation is the be-all and end-all of Christianity, of the gospel, the fact is that God made and saved people for a purpose, not simply for themselves. He made them and saved them so that through them, through the church as his image bearers, he could bring the values of his kingdom to this earth. We see this clearly in the final chapter 
of Revelation, where the rivers of the water of life flow out from the city and the tree of life springs up and the leaves we read are there for the healing of the nations. Now, I'm labouring this point a little bit because there is so much confusion, I think, in the church as to what the purpose of the gospel really is. Let me give you a quote which goes straight to the heart of the matter from theologians David Watson and Douglas Meeks. This is what they say. Only a fraction of our sins are personal. By far the greater part of sins, sorry, by far the greater part are sins of neglect, sins of default, our social sin, our economic sin. For these sins, Christ died and continues to die. For these sins, Christ atoned and continues to atone. As long as evangelism presents a gospel centred on the need for personal salvation, individuals will acquire a faith that focuses on maximum benefits with minimal obligations. And we will change the costly work of Christ's atonement into the pragmatic transaction of a salvation contract. The sanctifying grace of God in Jesus Christ is meant not just for the sinner, but also for a society beset by structural sin. I think there you've got it in a nutshell. The great scholar Dallas Willard, who we refer to many times, he wrote the book, The Divine Conspiracy, and how in that book he, he explained how the church had presented the Bible's message over the last two centuries, focusing, as it has done, on how we can get our sins forgiven and go to heaven when we die. And he dubbed this approach dismissively as the gospel of sin management. So more and more Christian scholars and leaders are rightly challenging this narrow presentation of the gospel, particularly, you know, particularly in the light of some of the overwhelming political and social issues that we are facing today, not least you know, the terrifying implications of global warming. Uh, the sicknesses of inequality and greed and the exploitation of racism that pervade our world today. You see, this is the conventional, the old hat presentation of Jesus' gospel message, which sadly is still being presented in this sort of way. Jesus says... If you want to be among those specifically qualified to escape being punished forever in hell for your sins, you must repent of your individual sins and believe that my Father punished me on the cross so that he won't have to punish you in hell. Only if you believe this will you go to heaven and the earth and when the earth is destroyed and everyone else is banished to the pit. This is the good news. Really? Really? Suppose we were to present the gospel message on more 
biblical lines and present it this way. I have, Jesus says, I have been sent by God with this good news, that God loves humanity, even in its lostness and sin. God graciously invites everyone and anyone to turn from his or her current path and follow a new way. Trust me, become my disciple, and you will be transformed, and you, this is the important bit, and you will participate in the transformation of the world, which is possible right now. This is the good news. Rick Warren recently called all churches to what he called a second reformation. The first reformation, he explained, led by Martin Luther, was about belief, wasn't it? It was all about right belief. This one, says Rick Warren, will be about deeds. It is about what the church should be doing in the world. And the way that we have over-spiritualized the Bible's message to be about all about us is actually, you know, based on a very, very limited number of scriptures in a Bible that consists of around 31,000 verses. And we've treated a tiny slither of the Bible as the real spiritual meat and effectively regarded the rest as mere padding. Suppose then that all that stuff regarding the so-called non-spiritual issues turned out to be as important as and central to the teaching of the Bible as the so-called spiritual. Suppose, for example, that much of what Jesus said and did was a deliberate challenge to the authorities of his day concerning the inequalities and the abuses and the discrimination in every area of life, social, political and religious. Let's look at this and unpack it a little bit. Take, for example, the word gospel the Greek word evangelion, which means, of course, good news. Suppose, so just suppose that Jesus deliberately used that word knowing that it would be a direct, or knowing that it would be seen as a direct challenge to the ruling elite of the time, the Roman Empire. You see, this word gospel had been, had been used for some considerable time before Jesus' uh, arrival on the scene. And it had been used by Roman emperors, no less, to describe the good news and benefits of the rule of Rome. It was, in effect, a well-known political propaganda term. For example, the birth of Caesar Augustus in 63 BC was announced to the people as Evangelion, good news, the gospel. An inscription found just south of Ephesus and is now 
uh, can now be seen in a Berlin museum, reads this of that birth. The good news, the gospel, about the birthday of a divine child who will save the world from destruction by establishing permanent peace. A temple also in Ephesus still bears this inscription in Greek to the autocrat Caesar, the son of God. Now this is 60 years before Jesus was born. So even if Jesus had never existed, another human being in the same Mediterranean world had already been proclaimed son of God and indeed God incarnate. In fact, all the sacred titles that we might assume to be Christian creations were already associated with Caesar Augustus, the first undisputed Roman ruler. He was described, and we have records of this from the historians of the time, he was described as divine, Son of God, God, Saviour of the world, Liberator, Redeemer. Words like justice and peace and gospel and grace and salvation were also associated with him. <clears throat> According to the poet Horace, one of the well-known poets of the time, uh, Augustus was also linked to the concept of sin and atonement for sin. So can you see that <clears throat> when Jesus deliberately and knowingly allowed these names to be associated with himself, it was obviously going to be seen as highly provocative and politically subversive. Now, Perhaps our meek and mild Jesus is not quite as meek and mild as some of us had assumed. Suppose that at the heart of Jesus' mission was a passion to challenge the rule of Rome. Why? Why would he do that? Because that empire represented everything that the kingdom of God opposed violence, oppression, economic injustice, uh, the exploitation of women and children, racism, punishing levels of taxation, ordinary people losing their land and becoming slaves or tenant farmers. All this stuff, all this stuff is in the Bible. But many of us have no idea it's there. Because, as Rick Warren pointed out, all we are interested in is me and my salvation. Now, sadly, all of these important issues that the Bible comprehensively addresses are often treated, as I said before, as just padding to support the main message of getting to heaven when we die. This is what respected scholar N.T. Wright says in his book, The Last Word. What has happened in the church over the past 200 years or so is that we have turned the kingdom of God into the hope for heaven after death, leaving the politicians 
and economists and other power brokers of the Enlightenment to take over the running and, as it turns out, the ruining of the world. Kick God upstairs, make religion a matter of private piety, and then you can organise the world to your own advantage. So maybe if we were to understand the Gospel and to read the Bible from this broader perspective, then the prayer of Jesus that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven would come alive with new meaning as we watch TV images of whole communities dying of, of starvation, of whole races being stigmatised, persecuted and deprived of the basic necessities of life like food and water. These are the very issues that the biblical writers, the prophets and most of all Jesus himself, put at the centre, at the centre of their God-given mission. So justice is in the very DNA of the Bible. So can you see how by restricting our presentations of the gospel to the exclusively personal and spiritual, we inadvertently misrepresent the heart of God to a desperately needy world, with the result that the church can appear irrelevant to the plight of millions upon millions of suffering people. How is the church helping the poor, the starving, the oppressed minorities in every walk of life? Is its voice being heard on the social injustice of our day? Now let's have a think about the political world that Jesus lived in. When Jesus uses the word kingdom, kingdom of God, the word only meant one thing to first century Palestinian ears. It meant Caesar's kingdom. Caesar's kingdom was the only kingdom show in town. But Jesus was preaching a kingdom that turned all that Caesar's kingdom represented it on its head. It was a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where the poor will be blessed, a kingdom where all are equal, a kingdom where the hungry will be fed, a kingdom where minorities won't be abused, a kingdom where the persecuted will be delivered, a kingdom for the meek and those who mourn. In other words, by using kingdom language, <clears throat> Jesus was knowingly and openly challenging the domination system of his time. He was saying, Caesar is not king, God is king. And to understand the radical and political dimension of Jesus' message, in, and also that of the Old Testament, it will be helpful just to say a few words about the domination system. Domination system is so-called um, for the simple reason that from ancient times, right up until the days that we live in, uh, one class of people, the wealthy and the powerful, have ruled society. There have always been the ruled and the rulers, and the have-nots and the haves. 
And of course, in modern Western society, we often think of three classes, don't we? Uh, the upper class, and the middle class, and the lower class, and the lower class being the ones who are oppressed. But in the biblical world, there was no middle class to speak of. Uh, it was just a small upper class, uh, and then everybody else, 90% plus, was very much lower class at the bottom. And, of course, power and wealth, they overlapped. So there was a small elite group who were powerful and wealthy. And everybody else, everybody else, the vast majority of people who were without power or wealth and therefore effectively marginalised. And this is what Jesus was born into. And biblical scholars are becoming increasingly aware of the significance of such domination systems for understanding the world of the Bible and of Jesus. And the nature of the domination systems is that many are exploited by the few. And of course the first one that we uh, read about in the Bible is that is where the uh, Israelites were uh, enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt. And in biblical times, particularly in Jesus' time, the people who suffered from the domination system were typically, as I say, the 90% of ordinary people who were exploited by the tiny, tiny uh, elite. And of course, in today's society, uh, it is the lower class who are exploited, but it's much wider than that now, of course, isn't it? Because there are now, in our society, whole new groups of people who are exploited because of their race or their gender or their sexuality or for any number of other things. Now, the Bible came into existence in this kind of social world, and we need to understand that, where the majority were kept down by a tiny minority. And what is often overlooked by religious people is that major portions of the Bible, both Testaments in fact, are a protest against the unfairness of the domination systems of their time. The prophets, Micah, uh, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, uh, all in the 8th century BC, they, a lot of what they wrote were complaints about uh, the injustices of the world. And then a second cluster of prophets came along who just precede the Babylonian exile in 586 uh, BC. And they also had a lot to say about the injustices of the world. And I want to just read you a few examples of these. <clears throat> this is just a tiny pinprick of the stuff that the prophets uh, have written about. So, they trample, they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way, Amos 2.7. I hate your, your, and despise your religious feasts. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Amos 5. You oppress the poor. You crush the needy. Amos 4.1. They covet fields and seize them, houses, and take them. They take them away. They oppress the householder and house, people and their inheritance, Micah 2.2. 2. 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? What does the Lord require, really require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, verse 7 and 8. God expected justice but saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness but heard a cry, Isaiah 5 and verse 7. And about Jerusalem, Jeremiah said, run to and fro through the streets and look around and take note. Search its squares and if you, to see if you can find one person who does justice and seeks truth, Jeremiah 5 and verse 1. And he even spoke out about the, temp- the corruption of the temple authorities. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Jeremiah 7 and verse 11. And so, as I say, the domination system has been a feature of human society from the beginning of recorded history, really, <clears throat> and also the Bible. In both Testaments, the Bible condemns the evil that it represents and the misery that it inflicts on a human, on humanity. And as we shall see shortly, the gospel of Jesus was not only a message that, that addressed personal spirituality, that's part of it, but very much one that challenged the domination system of his day and the powers that lay behind it. The nature of the domination system in the days of first century of Jerusalem had evolved into a particular form. The Jewish homeland was ruled by Imperial Rome and more specifically the temple became the centre of collaboration with Rome and was required to pay tribute as money basically to the emperor. So the few who ruled at the top of the local system were the temple authorities and they were headed by the high priest, including members of the aristocratic families. And economic wealth in those days was primarily centred around land. Land was all important in Palestine, and that's where economic wealth lie. And despite the Old Testament uh, laws prohibiting ownership of land by priests, in practice, many priests had acquired land which had been confiscated from the ordinary people by Herod and given to the new elite. Most other legitimate landowners had been forced to give up their land to the ruling powers as a penalty for not paying their taxes, punitive taxes. And it was the teaching of the Old Testament that every person had a right to work a plot of land. You read this in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 19. Every person had a right to work a plot of land. Didn't have a right to own the land because um, the Bible taught that everything belonged to God. So in the time of Jesus, because of the corruption of the ruling elite, most ordinary people had lost their only economic asset, their land, and had become tenant farmers. Even, when, even then, it was commonplace for the new owners to insist on working the land that they'd confiscated from the ordinary people with as few workers as possible, requiring many men to hang around, virtually begging 
for work. And, that, and this is what is referred to in Jesus' parable on the workers in the vineyard. <clears throat> and the temple became the centre of both the local and the imperial tax system, imposing even more burdensome taxes on the people, resulting in great wealth for the few, but poverty for the rest. Now, the fact that Jesus and John the Baptist began to pray for people and to forgive them of their sins outside of the temple system was highly significant. In fact, this is what led to their deaths. Because forgiving people of their sins was the job of the temple system and the sacrifice system. And it was a very, very lucrative system, selling the various animals for people to make their sacrifices. So when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic man and the scribes objected, saying, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone, in Mark 2 and verse 7? They were not complaining so much that Jesus claimed to be God, although that was bad enough. What they were really concerned about was that God had only provided one way to forgive sins through the temple sacrifice system, the very lucrative temple sacrifice system. And here is Jesus and John proclaiming forgiveness outside of the temple. I and mean, if this caught on, their income would plummet. The temple authority's income would plummet. And this is probably a good place to finish this session. You know, next week we shall be focusing on Jesus's political message and also his strategy for confronting the injustices of the society that he lived in. You know, he actually gave some helpful advice to people, his disciples, as to how to deal with uh, people who were oppressing them. And we will look at the advice that Jesus gave. And then in the final week, in week three, we will dig down into some specifics and look at the whole issue of what the Bible says and how it has been used on the subject of racism. So that's it for the first session. Look forward to your questions or your discussion points um, later on.